Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Why Follow Jesus, with a message entitled, The Security of the Believer. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've never met a human being who doesn't struggle with insecurity at some level. And all of this is a part of living in a fallen world. So think, for instance, of the 13-year-old girl. She's in high school. There are, you know, big kids all around her, and her fellow students can be most cruel. She worries if she's attractive enough, if she has a womanly enough figure, if she fits into some group somewhere. Well, all of this is a very difficult experience for a great many 13-year-olds. The result is that her security is based on the acceptance of others, the appearance of her own body, and and all of these things are fleeting. Well, think of the pastor who's just been fired from his church. Let's just assume that it was not on moral grounds. It's on some other basis. And he feels shame, shame of having failed God and failing God's people, coupled with feelings of anger and then, then guilt at struggling with the commands of Christ to forgive those who have done harm to him. In the end, he struggles with insecurity. Am I accepted among God's people? Think about the pre-med student who has such high hopes and then doesn't make it into med school. Think of the wife whose husband cheated on her. Think of the child whose parents tell him that he's a loser because he can't get onto the top sports team in his area. Think of the elderly widow or widower who's in a nursing home and no one comes to visit. Rejected insecure. The reality is that we all struggle with insecurity because we live in a hostile and deeply savage world. See, we all know that we might be accepted at one point in time and then rejected at another. And furthermore, we also are suspicious that that we might be lacking in some area and we're unable to make the grade. See, we're insecure because quite often we are intimately familiar with our own shortcomings and we're desperately hoping that those shortcomings will not be the cause of our own undoing. The problem is that some of us take these matters into our relationship with God. What if God sees our sins and finally decides that's too many sins and that's too many failures and that's too many miscues? After all my patience with you, I I find you to be still a rebel. Perhaps God's really saying, I never knew you. And consequently, the greatest rejection of all, God, rejecting you for all of eternity. Don't you see, in an unkind and a savage world, this is the ultimate savage act. You know, we've been studying John chapter 6, and up till now, we've, we've not been studying whether or not we're accepted or rejected by God, but rather whether or not people will reject God's own Son. We've seen the people of Galilee. They're delighted when Jesus feeds the 5,000, but they're unwilling to follow Jesus. See, they would be happy to make him their king, but they're unhappy with his demands that they believe on him and surrender their entire lives to him unto eternal life. I mean, this is taking matters too far. And eventually the gloves are off. No more polite dialogue. This is replaced now by an honest and a brutal dialogue. The crowd tells Jesus, look, We like your miracles and we like your preaching, but you haven't even come close to being an equal to Moses. Moses did miracles. Indeed, he fed two million people for 40 years, and you fed one crowd of people on one occasion. You're good, but you're not that good. And we've heard Jesus challenging the crowd. 
Moses didn't feed you at all. God did. And furthermore, I'm not to be compared to Moses. I'm to be compared with the manna, for I'm the bread of God that comes down from heaven. Clearly, you haven't understood who I am. If you eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. But as we're going to see, the people aren't buying that. As far as they can see, Jesus is now going far too far. His claims are outrageous. They're going to reject Jesus as we're going to see. But and this is the key to our study. This passage is not about Jesus' insecurities. No, no, not at all. Well, let's read the passage. John 6, 35 to 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, let's break this passage down into four very important sections. Section 1, the crowd's rejection of Jesus' claims. It's found in verses 35 to 36. Section 2 from verse 37, notice the explanation of why the crowd is rejecting Jesus. And then section 3 from verses 38 to 39, please notice the reason why Jesus is acting the way he does. I mean, after all, we do notice that he pushes the crowd so hard. I mean, what else can they now do but but reject him? His claims are so outlandish. And then finally, in the last section, section 4 from verse 40, it's the promise that Jesus makes to all who believe. So let's take it one section at a time. First, let's consider what the crowd rejected about Jesus. Notice again verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now that's Jesus' key claim. Remember, the crowd has been comparing Jesus to Moses, and yes, they say you fed us, but we think that you're a prophet predicted by Moses, the one who will provide deliverance from our enemies and feed us every day. Just just do it, they say. And to which he says, I'm not like Moses at all. I'm like the manna. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. I am the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. And it's this role that the Jews of Galilee reject. I mean, after all, they had Moses and the law. I mean, how can this man be the source of eternal life? So please see that this is precisely the reason why people reject Jesus. And and many people feel quite comfortable today talking about Jesus as a moral reformer or even a religious and spiritual reformer. Many see his ethic of loving our enemies to be the difference that has allowed whole cultures to develop an ethic of peace rather than constantly being at war for every real or perceived injustice. And still others are quite comfortable with giving Jesus the chief voice among all the world's religious prophets. And and still others want to see him as giving the world a template for politics and social discourse. And for these reasons, Jesus is always going to be popular. His wisdom just outstrips everyone else. But to make Jesus the only source of salvation from sin and eternal life, to make him the savior of the world, well, that's going far too far for a vast majority in the world. 
This role was rejected by the Jews of Galilee, and it's still the major reason why people reject Jesus today. Well then, that leads us to the second point. Why does the world reject Jesus as the Savior? And the answer, and I know it's going to be hard for some to hear, but that answer is found in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That is, everyone who comes to me was given to me by the Father. Or the explanation for anyone coming to me is that the Father has already given them to me. Now, of course, that's not the only time we find Jesus speaking that way, especially throughout the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10, after Jesus explains that his sheep will listen to his voice, then he says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Or consider John 17 verse 2, which is a a part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays, since you have given them to me. And then in verse 9 of the same chapter, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given to me. Then verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory. And then on to chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus says, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. What's all that about? Simple. Jesus says that those who have come to him are given by the Father. God is sovereign over all, and he is sovereign over all that come to me. Now look, that doesn't mean that those who don't come aren't responsible for their rejection of Jesus. But it does mean that only those whom the Father gives to the Son will come. And it does absolutely no good to say, well, everyone is given to the Son by the Father. No, no, that's not what Jesus says in John 6, 37. How many come to Jesus? The answer in that passage, all that the Father gives come to Jesus. How many come to eternal life? Well, it's all or 100% of those the Father gives comes to the Son. My dear friend, do you believe in Jesus? Would you marvel at that truth and be filled with gratitude? Say to your own soul, I came to Jesus because the Father gave me to the Son. Thank you, Father, for this was your gracious act. Back to the Bible Canada is just not a small team of people in an office, but a team of thousands across this nation who all share the common dream of seeing people confronted with the truth of the gospel. We're so blessed to be backed by faithful and generous supporters who do so much in making this ministry a reality. Sharon recently wrote in saying, we want to be part of what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada, not just in Canada, but overseas. That's why we support. If you believe in the mission of this ministry, please join the cause. Your gifts amplify the sharing of the good news. Consider sending a gift today to help reach our year-end goal by December 31st. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And from our family at Back to the Bible Canada to yours, Merry Christmas. Now, we've noticed why the crowd rejected Jesus as Savior. He was saying that he was the difference between eternal life and dying in our sins. 
And then we've noticed that Jesus has said that the reason anyone comes to him is because the Father has given them to him. Now, third, let's notice why Jesus is acting the way he does. So here I'm reading verses 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, the teaching that Jesus never did his own will, but only the will of the Father, well, that's a repeated theme in the teaching of Jesus. See, even if you don't know your Bible well, you're going to remember that while Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, just before his arrest and his crucifixion, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Now, the reason that some people struggle with this concept is because they struggle with another thought. You know, when the book of John begins, it begins with the words, in the beginning was the word, which, by the way, is a reference to Jesus, who is in the beginning. He is the word, and he is with God, and he is God at the same time. And then later on, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. It was after that declaration that the Jews picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that he was claiming equality with God, and they were right about that. That's exactly what he was saying. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And that phrase, I am, in Judaism, was always a description of the one and only God. See, it was C.S. Lewis that pointed out that, you know, you can be a Hindu or a Buddhist and claim equality with God, but not if you're a Jew. The Jews were monotheists. There was for them but one God and only one who is worthy of worship and honor. And so what Jesus said about himself was either blasphemy or an arrogance worthy of a madman, or it was true. It has to be one or the other. And yet this one who claims full equality with a father, who himself claims to be fully the one true God, also claims that each and at every moment, he's not doing his own will, but the will of the father. So, so what does that mean? Well, for starters, it must mean that in Jesus' way of thinking, submission is not a sign of the lack of equality. Let me put it in human terms. According to the Bible, my wife is called to submit to me her husband. But also, according to the Bible, I am to treat my wife as fully my equal. Indeed, it's demanded of me. It's part of God's creative design for me. Well, in the Godhead, we're told that it was the Father who planned our salvation from eternity past. It was the Son who obeyed the Father and brought about our salvation, obeying the Father even to the point of death. And it was the Spirit who, who executes our salvation. He, he changes our hearts and he draws us to the Father. And so we can see that God is one, but that this one God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons are the one God and the three persons are eternally equal. But for the sake of our salvation, the Son took on human flesh, and he submitted himself to the will of the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. I am acting not on my own, but fully out of obedience to my Father. Now, back to our passage. To be specific, says Jesus, the Father is already determining who should come to me. And in submission to the will of the Father, the Father has commanded me that I should not lose any of those he sends my way. The Father has commanded that I should keep safe all those whom he gives me. 
and I'm determined to obey his command. Think of how shameful it would be if after the father gave one of his own to the son, that the son would then say to the father, well, sorry, father, I I just was unable to keep your command. I, I lost one of them. Well, such a matter would be shameful. It's unthinkable that the son who has all power and authority in heaven and on earth should lose even one that the father has given him. I mean, think in this regard to the parable of the good shepherd who leaves the 99 in the fold and then goes after that one sheep that was lost. Well, what Jesus is referring to here is not everyone. He's referring to the sheep that the father has given the son. He will go after every erring one, losing none of them. So remember, I began this section by talking about, you know, the insecurity that so many of us feel because, you know, of the savage nature of living in a sinful and a fallen world. But here, listen, blessed believer, here's a promise of Jesus. In John 15, verse 6, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, of course, in that section, Jesus is using shorthand for what he said before. You know, he's saying, you did not choose me, but the Father gave you to me. And that's the reason why I chose you. And that's the reason why I'll never lose you. Dear believer, stop feeling insecure. Indeed, revel in your security. The father commanded the son, don't you lose any whom I gave you. And the son responded to the father and said, father, I promise you, I will lose none of them. But still, some of us will be insecure. I mean, what about Judas Iscariot, we might ask? Didn't Jesus lose one of the 12? Well, what did Jesus say about that? Listen again, as Jesus prays to the father, it's recorded in John 17, verse 12. He says, I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, look, there's so many questions we might ask of that passage, including, well, first, which scripture was Jesus referring to? And second, if Judas is the son of destruction, according to an ancient prophecy, did he still have his own free will? Now, I leave all of that to our study, which I will do in the future of John 17. But for now, let's agree on this, that when Judas was stealing from the offering, And when he was rejecting Jesus' teaching, that Judas chose freely what he would do. But this is the issue for our study of John 6. Jesus never lost Judas. Judas is saying, the father never gave me Judas. I chose Judas to be one of the 12, not for the sake of forming the foundation of the church or of preaching the gospel to the world. I chose Judas in fulfillment of scripture, that he should be my betrayer. That's because 100% of all those whom the Father gives me, that same 100% will be kept. I will lose none of them. With all the questions we might have of this, we're still left with Jesus' clear affirmation. I never lose those the Father gave me. And so I return again to the security of everyone who believes on Jesus unto eternal life. Jesus won't lose you. If you rebel, he will seek you and bring you back. If you're discouraged, he will find you and your heart will be drawn in faith to him again. He won't lose you. He will not reject you. He's not going to stand you up. He's going to keep you. Dear believer, know this. Jesus will not discard you. He will not abandon you. He's not going to throw you out. You need never be insecure in his presence. He made a promise to the Father concerning you. And what a blessed promise. And then one more matter. 
Remember, we've looked at the crowd's rejection of Jesus' claims. And then secondly, we've seen that the explanation of that rejection. And then third, we've looked at Jesus' promise to those who are his own. He doesn't lose you. Now, finally, we come to verse 40. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the conclusion. Everyone who looks to the Father, that that looking is a synonym for believing. If you have faith in him, if you've surrendered your life to him, you have eternal life. So what's eternal life? Well, look, by calling it eternal, Whatever else is meant in that word, know this, it's an eternal promise. Eternal means, yeah, eternal. It is eternal. It doesn't end. It can't become ineffective, and it can't die. It's an eternal promise that won't run out like a five-year warranty. It's an eternal promise. And that means in the last day, that is, in the day when all things are made new, when the heavens and the earth disappear with a roar, in that day, when all human beings must stand before the judgment seat, on that day, when all humanity is cast either into the lake of fire or receives an eternal reward, in that day, says Jesus, I will raise you up. Death won't claim you, says Jesus. It can't claim you because I have made the Father a promise on your behalf, and I will not be disobedient to that command. If today you're listening to my voice, believe this, that if you've entrusted your life into the hands of Jesus, Christ will keep you. Lose your insecurity. Become secure in Him. John, thanks for your message. Just a question that probably goes through a lot of people's heads, and it's really about, you know, if like Half a dozen years ago, I I said the sinner's prayer, whatever the case might be. But since then, my life really hasn't changed. Uh, I've been living more for the devil, perhaps, than I have for the Lord. But am I still secure? Yeah, that's such an important question, Ben. And I want to make something very clear. All of those who are in Christ are secure until the end. Now, when we're in Christ, now John speaks about this in 1 John when he speaks about the seed of God remaining in us, and we can't carry on in the former lifestyle because there has been a a new birth that's occurred in us. So the new birth, I'm going to argue, indicates a change of heart. Now, I'm going to say that the person who doesn't have a change of heart, well, there hasn't been a new birth. So, you know, you, you can pray a prayer, but if there is no change of heart, then there hasn't been a new birth. So I'm going to say wherever there's been a new birth, wherever the Spirit of God has entered into a person, wherever there's been genuine faith, it goes on for eternity. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the message of hope found in Jesus Christ. Jesus came with the grace of forgiveness and the truth which transforms. And your support enables Back to the Bible Canada to sow this biblical truth in a spiritual famine. By your prayers and generosity, God's Word grants light and life to families under stress, seniors isolated in apartments, truckers alone on the road, unbelievers whose hearts and minds are in turmoil. Now the month of December marks year-end for charitable donations. This year, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are looking to raise $517,000 to reach our year-end budget. 
We hope you'll stand with us with your year-end gifts. This goal has been set not as an achievement, but as preparation and promise. To give your gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.